Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we tap experts on topics that matter most to the modern working woman, whether you are running the show or working your side hustle. We're bringing in leading female entrepreneurs to share their stories with you. Are you ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. What risk can you afford to take? This is the question Rachel Tipograph, founder and CEO of the world's first mobile video shopping network, Micmac, asks herself when she faces a challenge. Rachel's groundbreaking platform creates short, shoppable videos to market beauty, tech, and home-related products, has been destined for a career that bridges comedy and commerce since she was crowned eBay power user at the age of 13. After graduating from NYU, she cut her teeth working as a digital strategy consultant for corporate giants including Levi's, GE, and at the age of 24, she was named Global Director of Digital and Social Media at Gap. It was there where she saw the future of media and commerce and decided to quit her job and build Micmac. And it's just a little over a year and Micmac has already raised its first millions in funding. Among being named on the 30 under 30 list by Forbes, Rachel has a slew of awards and recognitions from companies we know and love, such as Marie Claire and Ad Age. On today's episode, Jacqueline is talking to Rachel about how she raised $1 million in funding, her journey from nine to five to full-time entrepreneur, and her secrets to success. Take it away, Jacqueline and Rachel. So welcome to the podcast, Rachel. So excited to talk to you. You are one of my favorite women in business because you're consistently crushing it and are such an inspiration. So let's hear more about your story and how we can relay that information back to our listeners that may want to be jumping from their corporate career into entrepreneurship, which you did very successfully. You were at 24, the global director of digital and social media at Gap, an executive position at an iconic global retailer. Can you talk about how you got there and what that process was like? Yeah, of course. And excited to be here. The feeling is mutual about my love for you. <laughs> uh, so I've been doing e-commerce my entire career. When I was 13, I became an eBay power user. And content and commerce has just been at the intersection of my life from that earliest memory. The way that I got to Gap was, you know, Gap had 10 years of declining sales. If you were around or on the internet in 2010, 
I'm sure you can remember when Gap changed its logo and America got very upset and brought their voices to social media. So in 2011, the company recognized that they were fairly out of touch with the next generation of customers. And they hired their first ever global CMO, Seth Bartman, who was my boss. And Seth made this bold decision to build a brand new global marketing team in New York and hire a head of digital that he felt was their target customer. So when I started in 2011, the average customer age was a 47-year-old woman. When I left in 2014, we knocked a decade off the customer. So the mandate the organization had to me was lower the average age of the customer. Mm. And, and the way that I landed that job was uh, I went to NYU, like you, and pretty much hustled my way through school, worked every single semester at tons of various internships, many at the intersection of entertainment and business. And then the financial crisis happened while I was in school. And you saw companies like Miramax Films and New Line Cinemas, which was, you know, two of the big entertainment companies in the New York, lay off hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And at the time, like, if you were graduating college in 2008 or 2009, the companies that were hiring in New York City were digital and social media ad agencies. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I know I'm telling your story right now <laughs> I as well. Know. Totally. Um, that's, you know, where we all got jobs. And I was hired by this company called Undercurrent that ended up getting acquired, but it was right place, right time. Uh, essentially they had just won the PepsiCo business and they decided to hire me at 22 years old to run that for them. And then I started doing similar work for their clients, which included Levi's, Vans, Estee Lauder. And when Gap and Seth started to build this brand new marketing team in New York, Seth turned to a colleague of his who used to work with me at Undercurrent and said, hey, who should I hire to run Global Digital? And this guy, Jordan, who I owe so much, said there's only one name you need to know, and it's Rachel Tippograph. And that really is what led me to Gap. I love that so much. And I remember the undercurrent days. Feels like a thousand years ago. I know. Um, But it's amazing because I feel like so many incredible entrepreneurs actually sprung from the like you said, the social media ad agency early, early, early on sort of early adapters in New York City. It feels like a lot of founders I know now came from that sort of school of thought. So anyway, you're at Gap. It's, you know, massive company, super corporate. How many years were you were you at Gap? I was there for three years, 2011, 2014. So then you're like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Can you walk me through the process from I have a really cushy job, a great title, and then I'm going to just take the leap and do something totally different. Because I think that's something a lot of people go through, um, but I just want to hear it vocalized by you. Yeah, of course. You know, I've been entrepreneurial my whole life. So when I became an eBay power user at 13, the impetus was that I had a bat mitzvah, was given all these presents I didn't want and sold all of them on eBay. But then I actually turned that into a legitimate business. And I was literally my town's online garage sale. And I took 20% of every transaction. (laughs) And when I was at NYU, I had another company uh, where I essentially marketed comedians online via Facebook, got them gigs at college campuses where, you know, I get Syracuse University to pay a comedian $5,000, $10,000 a night versus a New York City comedy club where you would make $75 a night. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then I landed in the ad agency world and then I landed at Gap, but that entrepreneurial spirit has 
been a part of me my entire life. Both of my parents uh, have their own companies. And I just grew up in a universe where being your own boss, managing your own time, and literally hustling your face off is the DNA and what drives you and how you sort of derive your self-worth. When I joined Gap, uh, I knew in many ways it was going to be my like graduate school in e-com and retail. And so I did a few strategic things. So one was, first when I joined the company, when I was negotiating my package, one of the things that I negotiated was that I had to be allowed to talk about my work publicly. And that was advice that I got from a mentor. Uh, if you know, you're in marketing, people might know this name, Bonin Bao. He is prolific at building his professional brand. And it was one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got. Because when you often join a big company, you can't talk about your work. And then people don't know your story and they don't know you. So I got that in my contract and I was able to talk about my work publicly. The second thing that I did was while I was at Gap, I built relationships with VCs. And the value exchange was VCs would be investing in consumer companies that they would one day hope could partner with Gap. And I was the brand girl that they would call up for that collaboration. So then I had VCs essentially building a relationship with me, following my career for three years. And that allowed me to have this awesome network when one day I would quit my job and go ask them for money. And then the third thing was when you're working at a global brand, you have oversight into the entire industry. Anyone will take a meeting with you, whether you end up doing business with them or not. And so I had this opportunity to see the future of media and commerce at large every single day at my job at Gap. And I took it really seriously. Like it's a true privilege that I cherished. And I use that as an opportunity to run a ton of different experiments, trying to prove my thesis on what will be the future of media and commerce while doing that at Gap's dollar. I mean, this is the most genius advice. I think so often, you know, we have said and and I've said on the podcast and in the book, like think of your day job as your investor or as in your world, almost as your B school, where you're, like you said, taking the meetings, you know, you can get meeting the people, whether it's VCs or other connections that you're leveraging and you had your eye on the prize, which I think is such a smart approach. So continue on. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, yeah, so I did all these experiments while I was at Gap um, because I also believed it was the right thing to do for the brand. And I was trying to solve some key pain points that we were experiencing. Um, So I don't know how many of your listeners are in the e-com world, but if you are, I'm sure what you recognize is that to drive e-com sales online, you often have to use marketing tactics that are brand erosive, like promotional emails, retargeted advertising, And you essentially train people to never shop at full price. And so I was constantly trying to figure out how do you build brands and drive performance all at once? And as soon as I felt like I figured it out, which was close towards the end of 2013, I go, okay, I feel like I'm onto something. And I feel like there's a pretty big market opportunity for someone to go out there and try to figure out how to do this. And it felt like a big enough challenge that I would stay interested for 10 years. And that's my barometer. And Jacqueline, you know this so well, like starting a business, growing a business is your blood, sweat and tears. You have to will your own success. And if you're not going to be in love with your idea for at least a decade, then you're never going to be able to sustain all the tailwinds that come with it. You know, I looked at the opportunity at hand and I said, okay, I built my professional brand. 
I'm considered an expert in the space. I built relationships with people who have outside capital that can give me money to jumpstart my business. And then I had another factor that I also know is a privilege, which is at the time I was 27 years old and the only responsibility I had was to myself. And so I recognized that maybe in a decade that might not be my life story. And it felt like the perfect time in my life to turn my life upside down, take no salary, put all my stuff in storage and give this a shot. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, one, it's so brilliant, you know, the way you, the trajectory you're talking about, but also the reality of like, if you are not willing to do this for 10 years and take all the ebbs and flows, like it's not worth doing. Um, I couldn't agree more with that. So tell us what Micmac is from the beginning, maybe what it was when it started, what it is sure. now and what you want um, it to be in the future. My favorite question to answer. <laughs> I'll talk about it in chronological order. My Micmac story is like so many entrepreneurial stories, which is how my company executes today is not how it began. But when it began and when I quit my job at Gap, pretty much what was happening was it was early signs that the internet was about to become one big video. You were seeing companies like Refinery29, BuzzFeed, fire their editorial staff and replace them with short form video production teams. I'm a very big believer that whatever happens in media will soon happen to commerce because it's a similar relationship with the customer. So while at Gap, I ran all these video e-com experiments and I was actually able to prove that with video and commerce, I could build brands and drive performance all at once. And so when I quit my job at Gap, my mission was essentially to disrupt the infomercial industry for everyone who grew up with a smartphone as a primary entertainment device. And that was the original sort of mission that I raised money around. And in June of 2015, I launched an iOS app. So literally, I was my own video store. You would download the Micmac app. Every night at 9 p.m., I released what I called mini-mercials, super short, shoppable infomercials. I had comedians hawking products. Everything I sold was below $100. It was all about impulse buys. And it was really this magical universe. Like, you know, people called us QVC for Snapchat, broad city for shopping. It was really irreverent, fun. We were going after pretty much this 20-something woman. And I ran that model for a year. And I signed up over 200 global brands. And then I pretty much mentally paused in June of 2016. And I looked at my financials and I said to myself, this business model will only work if I have the scale of eBay. Meaning I need 150 million daily active users to build a business that people will care about. And to do that in summer of 2016, you really had to go out and try to raise $65 million because the internet had changed. The app ecosystem is a pay to play environment. And you do that, plus for me, I had sunk costs into video production, I didn't own my inventory, I was making pennies on every transaction. But these brands that I was working with like the L'Oreal's and the Kate Spades and the Bose of the world all kept saying the same thing to me, which is that they wanted to white label Micmac because they too believe that the future of e-com will be deeply rooted in video. And when the biggest brands in the world are saying the same thing to you, you begin to pay attention. So the second half of 2016, I'm still running the business, 
but I'm also out in the market interviewing over 300 brands and retailers, literally trying to understand why can't you do this yourself? And what I unearthed is that every brand and retailer had the same three pain points, which centered around creative, user experience, and attribution, measurement. Essentially closing the loop on the investments that you were making in marketing and customer acquisition to that end sale. And what I found is that those three pain points are even more exacerbated when you talk to companies where the majority of their e-com sales come from environments like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Ulta, Sephora, Best Buy, Dick's Sporting Goods, meaning not D2C. So brands like L'Oreal, Procter & Gamble, Lego, Bose, Under Armour, all of these mass brands. And that's when I felt like, okay, there are real pain points in the market that I could solve with software right now that still rent center around my original thesis, which is video and e-com, but they're highly pinpointed and they're going after a customer set that has a lot of money. So the market opportunity is really big. And then I did the hardest thing in my career. I transitioned the whole business from a consumer app to an enterprise software model. I mean, everything was different except the company name. And then in March of 2017, I brought my enterprise software to market, which is how I execute today. We call our software Micmac Attach. In its simplest form, it's a universal product details page that can connect to any e-commerce cart. So we built integrations with over 200 of the main e-retailers like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Ulta, Sephora, and brands like the ones I mentioned, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, Campbell's, Mondelez, licensed my software to lift their e-commerce sales at these major e-retailers. So that's how I execute today. <laughs> so obviously inflection point and pivoting. And I think that's so important because I've done it a billion times. We've all done it. it. It's But it's crucial to your business. I said in you know work party, if you're not pivoting, you're not paying attention. And I think that's so important to pay attention to what's working. Like when the brands came to you and were like, we're actually really interested in this. And you're looking at your P&L and saying, wait a second, here's a huge opportunity I think for entrepreneurs out there, being nimble and able to shift and move in that direction is crucial to your long-term business strategy. And again, I think a lot of people think of that as maybe a failure or like this didn't work, but I think everything is a data point, like you said, and it's just about finding the data points that are working and going in that direction. A hundred percent. With every person who works for me, when I interview them, I tell them, I'm not married to my own ideas. I'm only married to one thing, and that is winning. And that's what I'm focused on. So if you guys have been listening to Work Party, you have heard of Third Love. Third Love is this new bra company, and it's really just like reinvented the way that women shop for bras. So long are the days where you used to have to go to the mall and like browse through all the bins and like find your sizes and try them on. And are you this size? Are you that size? You don't know. I mean, it was truly such a confusing process growing up and a little bit shameful. It was like very weird. So we're over that and we're on to Third Love. It's also female founded, so you know she knows what the hell she's talking about. And it's exactly why everyone is 
is so obsessed with it. Third Love offers more than 70 sizes, including their signature half cups because we all know we're not this full cup or this other cup. Um, sometimes you're a little handsy, which I am, so I feel that. Every customer has 60 days to wear your bra. You can wear it, wash it, put it to the test, and if you truly don't love it after that time frame, they actually let you return it. And what they do, which is amazing, is they will wash it and they actually donate it to women in need. So I highly suggest everyone checks out Third Love, see how they're supporting other women, read a little bit about their founder and why she found the need to start the company. Um, and there really is a perfect bra for everyone. Not only do they have these amazing sizes, but they have so many different colors. So everyone really can feel like, oh, okay, this is my nude obviously everyone's nude is not the same so there's a perfect bra for everyone right now they're actually offering our work party listeners 15% off your first order so go to thirdlove.com slash work party right now and you're going to find your perfect fitting bra they have a really handy quiz that you can take your fit finder so you'll be able to tell which size you are they'll show you all the different styles all the different color options and you'll get 15% off your first order that's thirdlove.com slash party for 15% off today bra shopping just got way easier so speaking of hiring and team, you have created this amazing dynamic amongst your team. How many employees do you have now? Uh, we're around 30 and we're probably going to be 55 by the end of the year. Insane. Yeah, so tell me about hiring. I think oftentimes that's the hardest part of the job. I love what you just said. Is there any other tips or tricks or protocols that you put your potential employees through before bringing them on the team? Oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, laying all my cards out. When I first started the company, I, I made some wrong hiring decisions, meaning everyone who's ever worked for me is an incredible human. It's not about that. It was not finding the right skill set for the needs of the business. So I learned some really hard lessons within the first two years. And now I feel like we are so freaking good at hiring. Um, we have like a, a pretty hardcore process, even though we're a small company. So at a high level to just sort of give you an overview of the process, you know, the first thing is like having a pipeline. So like any business development, you should have a good understanding over the course of the year, the type of roles that you're going to hire for and a plan on how you're going to generate talent, potential talent that you want to interview. So we have a lot of different resources based on the roles that we're hiring for. So I have specific services for engineers. I have specific services for customer success. I have specific services for sales and business development. And I also have now a special recruiter for diversity mm. because I'm really, really serious about that. And I think for a company to change the ratio and the outlook of their company, they need to actually invest in it. And there's a company or a person that focuses on that? Um, so we actually use a service called Jopwell. I highly recommend it. Amazing. Um, they do an amazing job with diversity recruiting. So um, it's first about building the pipe and having a really hardcore understanding of like, what are the actual responsibilities of this role and how do those responsibilities ladder up to your overall business objectives and having a very clear understanding on how you're going to measure the success of this person's role and ensuring that all those things align. The second thing that we do is like phone screenings. So, I mean, time is money. Mm. And so you should have a good sense of like who on your team, depending on the role, should do the initial 30 minute phone screening. And if possible, 
the phone screening should be a video call because you want to get a good feel for this candidate. After that, if we if we thought that person was good, we then bring them into the office as fast as we can. It's kind of like dating. Like you don't want to sit and dwell. Like you've just got to see if there's chemistry or not. And so we bring them into the office and then again, they'll meet with a few key people, but only 30 minute chunks. Cause again, like time is money. Mm-hmm. If they pass that, we then have an exercise. So the exercise is highly dependent on the role, but every single exercise requires the candidate to come back into the office and actually present in front of an audience. Mm. So communication, storytelling, like that is literally paramount to how I operate. And it's a, it's a skill that I actually believe will get you 80% through your career. And so people have to do that. And then if that goes well, it's really about reference calls, but not just the references that people give you. We also back channel. Meaning we live in a highly connected world. I'm sure if you went on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook, you could find other ways that you are connected to a candidate and you try to get some like real candid feedback. And then if that works out, we make an offer. Absolutely. I think references are such a funny thing because it's like, of course, they're going to put the good references. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done that a couple times where I've had people who've worked at different startups where I know the founder and they maybe don't know that. And almost 90% of the time, the people that they don't put that I talk to are like, it's not a fit. And it's so interesting because it's like that extra step is so crucial and so important, or they have really good feedback, like not strong at this, good at this, whatever it is going into it. But I think it's, I think that's so, so, so important is, you know, going into it and doing the research. Um, And I love that, you know, like you said, it's kind of like the pipeline, I think is the most crucial part. You know, I think oftentimes the startups you hire when you need it. And I think that's the worst strategy is like you need to be hiring six months ahead of whenever you think you'll need that position. So I think that's incredible advice. So let's talk about raising money. So um, you raised a four million dollar seed round in August 2016. It was led by VaynerMedia. What and also on the flip side of that, you are an angel investor in companies um, and you invest. So one, what was it like? finding investors and what were you looking for in terms of potential investors? And then on the flip side, when you're looking at potential investments, what are you looking for? Yeah. Oh man, this topic, we go on (laughs) forever about it. (laughs) Um, So at seed stage, really all that matters, this is the truth, is you are investing in the founder. Mm. Do you believe that this person has the know-how, the willpower to take this business as far as it possibly can. And in the eyes of a venture capitalist, they actually need you to become a billion dollar company. And this is where incentives are misaligned. You know, VCs are in the business of deploying capital. That's how VCs essentially make their money, right? They've went out into the world, family offices, institutions, they've raised all this money, and now they have a responsibility to deploy that capital. And they have to do it at a really fast rate with a really high return. Like that's their entire business model. So their whole thing is, hey, we're going to make, depending on the fund, somewhere between 20 and 100 investments a year. The reality is we need like two Ubers. Mm -hmm. And then we we make all our money back. And if you're not Uber, then you're you're dead to them. And so they're going to do everything in their power to get you to become Uber which means you have to spend money as fast as you receive it, Mm -hmm. which is what 
why these all these unicorn valuations, all this stuff, it's complete BS. And it's constructed by the world of VCs because it's how they make their money. It has nothing to do with actually building a legitimate business. Meaning most companies that are the unicorns are not even profitable. So it's really, really insane. I say all this because I, I know this is where Jack, you and I have a lot of heart together. Mm-hmm. Like we've built real businesses, like true profitable businesses. And I'm so freaking proud of that. But there's a world where they go, wait, you're profitable? What's wrong with you? That means you're not investing in your growth. And so that's where things are misaligned. But to give people advice, if you do want to go out in the world and raise money, you have to sell the dream. Seed investing is about selling the dream. So you need to have your pitch down so freaking hardcore. And the best way to do that is when you're first out in market raising money, meet with VCs that you don't care about getting no from. Get the terrible feedback from people that you don't even want their money and understand that this game is about taking 100 meetings, getting 99 no's and one yes. But once you get that one yes, everything will fall into place for you because you just need someone to put the flag in the ground and say, yes, I will be the leader of this round. And that person is really investing in you as the founder. That's number one. The second thing that they're investing is ultimately, are you going after a big market opportunity? Meaning, can you actually build a billion dollar business in the market that you're going after? And then the third is, have you put together a business plan that essentially shows how you'll achieve that? Now, of course, business plans change, but those are essentially the three things that matter in seed investing. At Series A investing, it's really about showing that you've achieved product market fit and now you want to scale. And Series B is about the path towards profitability. That's really sort of the the time horizons and the achievements that you want to make. So because I've been through all this um, and I've, I've taken venture capital money, but I've also been profitable since April of 2018. So Micmac is kind of like a weirdo in that sense, in mm-hmm. the eyes of VCs. But I'm really, really proud of the business that I built and I continue to build because we're just literally printing money. Um, and it allows me to have a lot of autonomy. What I look for on the investing side is really the three things that I just shared. But I'm so like now that I've made investments and I've seen some work out and some not work out, it's really all about the founder because most companies will pivot. And so you don't want to be in love with their idea. Mm. You really need to be in love with them as founders. Absolutely. And that was so helpful. Thank you for breaking it down in terms of like the VC funding and things like that. I think it's so important. I think you and I have had many a conversation about how, you know, being profitable is the goal and we got there. And then there's this weird moment of, wait, what do you mean? And it's not exciting. What's exciting is these massive valuations. I think for anyone who's listening, who's in that bubble or in that world, like just know that keep building your business, keep growing it, aim for profitability, aim for growth, aim for all those different things. But I think don't get discouraged by the constant media cycle of billion dollar valuations and all of that. I think, you know, especially, you know, for women, building a business is so crucial and having a real business is, is super powerful. And I think that's so amazing. So, um, well, thank you so much, Rachel. That's all the time we have for, you know, I could talk to you for 5 billion more hours, <laughs> um, but you are amazing and we love you and tell people where they can uh, learn more about Micmac and you. Yeah. So our website is micmac.tv, M-I-K-M-A-K.tv. And you can hit me up at Rachel at micmac.tv. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. 
Ladies, self-care is big business. While we're working harder than ever before, we're also working to take care of ourselves along the way, and we're willing to spend big bucks to do so. At Create and Cultivate's first ever self-care summit, we'll be exploring the world of self-care, from business of wellness to how the modern working woman turns off and disconnects after a long week in the office. If you're ready for a day of panels, keynotes, pop-ups, crystal readings, meditation sessions, and so much more, everything you know and love from Create and Cultivate, head over to createcultivate.com to grab your tickets for the first ever self-care summit in Los Angeles on July 20th. We'll see you there. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part career manifesto, part practical business advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com. So you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.